Exceeding Expectations, Episode 76. In today's episode, we learn a lot more about automation and entrepreneurship with a man called Richard Matthews, who has some amazing stories that we're about to find out very soon when we go into the episode. This is the podcast where we aim to give you ideas on how to exceed your customers' expectations and also to exceed your own expectations so that you enjoy what you do more. It's not just a job. And hopefully this will get you better referrals and testimonials and and so on. If you do like this um, podcast, please do leave a review for us on iTunes. Why not um, subscribe and share the episode with anyone who you feel may get some benefit from it. Right now, this week's episode. Exceeding expectations, today's guest, Richard Matthews. How are you, Richard? I am doing excellent. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. And uh, you seem to be a bit of a wanderer from uh, from our conversation just now. <laughs> yeah, I am. My, uh, my wife and I moved on to the road in an RV um, two and a half years ago. We had three kids at the time. We have since had a fourth child. So we got four kids and a big 40-foot RV. We've been traveling the USA for, uh, for the better part of two and a half years. And we only got about 26 states down, so we're only about halfway through it. I figure we got another couple of years of traveling in us. Um, and, you know, homeschooling the kids and really been enjoying that lifestyle and growing our business on the road that way. And what was the, you know, how did that all come about in the first place? Well, um, it was kind of an interesting thing. Um, my, my, I wanted to travel since I was young. Um, and when my wife and I got married, I mentioned to her that's one of the things I wanted to do was travel full time at some point. And, um, you know, it took me four or five years to convince her that that was a thing that she might want to do with me. Um, so about five years into our marriage, she was like, like, I'm down for that. We could, we could totally travel full time. And, um, she actually had a little journal that she had written down, like, you know, goals five years from now. And like, I'd like to be traveling the country full time with my husband. And that was, you know, 2012 timeframe. And it's funny because almost exactly five years to the day later, we moved into an RV. Um, and it, the way that it actually happened, um, was we had been, I had been spending a couple of years practicing with like, can I actually run a business? Not at my home office, right? Could I, you know, go to the beach and get work done? Could I, you know, live in someplace else and actually get work done? Do I have to have access to an office all the time? So I'd sort of been like testing it and seeing if I could do it with like hotspots and internet things. And it finally got to the point where it was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we totally could do this. And as we were thinking about it, our landlord, um, informed us that the owner of the house we lived decided they were going to sell it and we couldn't renew our lease. Um, so we had, uh, um, had approximately 35 days to move out of our space when we had, you know, three kids and whatnot. And my wife and I are like, Oh no, we got to find a house. We're looking for a bigger house. And then then just sort of in the midst of that conversation, we were like, Hey, what if we, you know, we're like unencumbered. We don't have a lease to worry about. We don't have anything like holding us here. I don't have a job here. Our business is, is movable. What about that RV trip we've been talking about for the last five years? And she was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, let's do it. So we went out and bought an RV two days later. Um, traveled halfway across the country to find it and brought it back home, renovated it in 14 days and sold everything we owned, put the rest of it into the, uh, into the RV. And within 28 days of the landlord telling us we didn't have a house anymore, we were full time living in an RV and have been traveling ever since. Cool. And what, how old were your kids when you first started on that, that kind of adventure? Yeah. So my oldest was seven. And, um, and then I had a, uh, a three-year-old and a uh, six-month-old baby. Um, and today they are 10 and six and three, and we have a newborn. Well, she's not new anymore. She's 10 months. Um, she just started walking last week. She's very, very excited about that and uh, as cute as can be. And, and how did the kids adapt to, to living in an RV? They have loved it. Um, I was, I was worried about that when we started, but they have really loved traveling and seeing things. And they've like, my kids have had food from all over the country. They got friends all over the country. Now we, with technology and whatnot, every time we meet a new family on the road, which happens quite frequently, we get the kids hooked up on Facebook messenger kids. And they like, they play, you know, I guess the game that everyone plays nowadays is uh, Minecraft and Fortnite. So they like, they set up games and play Fortnite over Facebook messenger and, you know, with, with kids they've met all over the country. Um, so they've made some really great friendships and, um, I don't know, like our, our kids really enjoy it. 
Um, and so we, we ask them regularly if, you know, if they're enjoying traveling or if it's something, if, if they're ready to stop and anything like that. And so far, our kids have regularly told us, like, nope, we want to keep traveling, keep going. We're not done. So it's been fun. <laughs> and, and so business-wise, how, how has your – has it affected your business in any way for, for better or worse? It, I mean, how's that been? It has. It has. It's affected my business significantly in a couple of ways. Um, the first one is that my business has grown – leaps and bounds. Um, like we forexed our business the first year we were on the road. Um, and, um, since then I have hired three, um, staff members and working on hiring more and we're have, uh, hopefully some big growth this year. Um, like if we actually hit our numbers this year, we'll hit a 10 X growth rate. Um, and I'll have a dispersed staff probably of 10 to 15 people by the end of the year or more. Um, which is, uh, is really cool. And I think the, the most interesting bit about that is the reason why I think it's happened. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's because, um, like if you, if you live in one place, um, you have sort of like a set routine that you follow all the time, right? Like, I, I, I don't know mm-hmm. if you were like this, but like when we were living in, you know, in the RV, we really called it a sticks and bricks house, right? When we were living in our sticks and bricks, um, we had mm-hmm. a very regular routine, like Wednesday night at eight o'clock, we were at my mom's house for dinner. Right. And, you know, Tuesdays at two o'clock, we were at my son's house for, you know, my son's gymnastic class. And like every day was like that. And every hour, right. It's like, Hey, you know, Saturday afternoon, we would take the day off and go explore something, do something fun. Like it was, it was a very regular thing. Like Tuesday afternoon, we were at El Gordito's, which is our favorite, you know, Mexican restaurant for taco Tuesday. Right. It was like, we had a very routine life and there's nothing wrong with having a routine life. It was like, we were having a good time and, um, and doing good work. But one of the things that I noticed happened um, when we got on the road is because we don't have a regular routine anymore, your mind is always sort of in this state of creativity, right? You're thinking about, like, we have to plan our next week for where we're going to stay and, like, what restaurant are we going to eat at? And we're trying new foods and meeting new people and doing new things all the time. So your mind mm-hmm. is sort of in, it's in a different place, right? Like, you're, you're not in a routine place. You're in sort of a creative space all the time. And I noticed I've been like my ability to ideate went through the roof Um, and our ability to to like get things done, like productivity went through the roof for a really odd reason. Right. Like if you're parked outside of Yosemite Canyon, um, right in in California and you're like, I want to get on there and go do a hike with the kids or play in the river or go jump off the cliffs or whatever, you know, the cliff diving, the stuff that we've done. Like, but I can't do that until I get my work Mm -hmm. done today. Right. Like you. Mm. you know, at, at home, I was like, I got my eight hour work day. I get my work done. Like I got eight hours to do it. And when we're done, we're going to like watch TV and go to a restaurant or whatever. Like it, there's not mm. as much motivation, right? So you, you let mm. things take longer than they need to. And I've noticed my actual time doing work has dropped to two to four hours a day. We get it done in the, you know, I get it done a lot faster. Um, and mm. I'm a lot more efficiently because I have motivation. I want to go do things and explore things and stuff like that. So it's had, it's had mm. a tremendous positive impact on my business. I don't know if it would be that way for everyone, but it certainly has been for me. The thing now is, I guess there's probably going to be a few listeners wondering, well, well, what is your business, Richard? So do you want to explain that to us? <laughs> yeah. So I actually, I have two businesses at this current point in time, and I am in the process of spinning down one to spin up the other one. So I'll give you the 30 second lowdown on, on the first one. The last 10 years or so, what I've been working with as I've worked with expert brands, right? So people who have, mm-hmm. um, a, a skill set of some sort, right? Uh, just like an easy example, someone who's like, Hey, I do wholesaling or real estate, and I would like to teach other people how to do that. And what I would help mm-hmm. them do is I would help them develop their brand, develop their brand identity, develop their course material. And we have a very specific way of how we develop course material. It's a very persuasion oriented. We got most of our clients would end up with, you know, 60, 70, 80% consumption rates of their courses. And then 60, 70, 80% of those people would actually succeed and accomplish the thing that they were teaching. All right. So we have very unique teaching mm-hmm. methods for that. Um, and then we'd help them do all of them, you know, all of the back end setup of their business, the tech stuff and the advertising and all that. And that's what I've spent the last many years doing. Um, and mm-hmm. just recently started to work on spinning that business down to spin up a new business, um, called push button podcasts and push button mm-hmm. podcast is sort of a, uh, a business that, um, came out of my own need. I, I have a, I have a podcast like you exceeding expectations, um, called the hero show. 
that was just a message mm-hmm. I really, really wanted to get out there. And the problem I was having with it is, you know, you know as much as I do, right? you record an hour's worth of content, you create a bunch of work for yourself, right? You've got editing mm-hmm. to do and you've got, you know, you've got to create graphics and create things and maybe you create audiograms, maybe you're creating video versions of your podcast. Like for me, we were creating, I was creating like eight to 10 hours of work for every hour of episode I created. Um, mm-hmm. And was having a hard time like actually getting my podcast published, right? I had a bunch of episodes mm-hmm. recorded and was never getting them out because I had too much other work to do. Um, so sat mm-hmm. down and developed all of the processes and hired the staff and the team and everything to just make it something that happens. So all I do now is like I show up for my podcast interviews, re- do the, re- do mm-hmm. the uh, recording, and when I hit the stop record, everything else happens, right? So all of my guest booking happens, all of the editing happens, everything happens. And I've turned that into a service. And now we work with uh, business development style podcasts. So for, you know, everything from like local chiropractors to businesses who are, are using podcasting as a medium to drive business to another, um, to their main business, um, we help them not have to be expert mm-hmm. podcasters, right? And do all the work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can just show up and record mm-hmm. their content and we literally handle everything else for them. And that's the business we're working on really spinning up this year um, and growing and expanding. And we're just about ready to start doing some big growth there and, uh, and go prime time with it. So that's, uh, that's where the focus is for the next year. And so I guess that with all the people that you're helping, so, uh, well, am I, am I right in thinking that you've helped a lot of people start from, from scratch um, creating podcasts and so on? Um, we have. So um, interesting thing about that. One of the things that, uh, that in the expert brand space, one of the things that we would help our clients do was get a podcast going um, and was mm-hmm. sort of the impetus for making the push button podcast service even a thing. Because like I had realized I, well, what I was doing was I was like, hey, you should start a podcast. And I would give them like an outline of like, here's the things you should do to start your podcast. Um, and then they mm-hmm. would you know, record a few episodes and then never do any of the stuff that went with it and realized like, Hey, if they were actually going to do this, we needed to have a service to help them deliver it. (laughs) So that's sort Mm -hmm. of where, where the push button podcast service became a thing. Um, so yes, we have Mm -hmm. helped a number of people start, um, podcasts. And again, it's, it's definitely in the biz dev space, um, as opposed to the podcasts Mm -hmm. that exist for the growth of an audience and to, you know, create, um, to create advertisement revenue or create revenue in and of itself, which is like, I think that's a different model than the, the market we help. So we generally help people who are like, mm-hmm. Hey, I have a business that drives revenue and I want to podcast as another method of driving audience to that business. If that makes sense. Right. And I use mainly dealing with people you meet face to face or is it people or, or, you know, just in America or internationally as well? I mean, how, how's that working? So most of my clients now are in the U.S. They are all over the U.S., um, you know, just because of the way business works nowadays. It's really easy to work with people all over the country. Um, so mm-hmm. I've, I've got clients in, in Louisiana and in Florida and Tahoe and uh, Malibu, California, and New York and L.A. So, like, we got clients all over the place. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the fun things about traveling has been that I've gotten, a, gotten the chance to sit down and have lunch or dinner, or like I even had Thanksgiving dinner with one of our clients in uh, in Florida last year, um, or the year before last, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really cool to get to to sort of meet some of your clients in person. Where you know nowadays with tools like um, with like Zoom and Skype and even this this platform Zencaster, you can talk to people like you're face to face. So it's it's fun mm-hmm. to uh, actually get to meet some of them in person when you get the chance. And how, so I guess you've been making the process like, a lot easier for, for these people who, who wanted to start up a podcast, but were just finding it too difficult. So you've made it much easier, just streamlined it for them. Yeah. So for our clients that, um, that uh, if they don't have a podcast, <laughs> we'll help them come up with the mm-hmm. concepts and all the things for it. But the, the, the big win is for someone who has a podcast already. Um, and they're putting all mm-hmm. the effort into doing it and realizing that, Hey, this takes a lot of effort, right? Like one of our clients had a, had their, one of their staff members that was running all of the backend effort that goes into getting their podcast done. They realized that like, I've got a high end employee who's spending 15, 20 hours a week just to get our single episode out every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can't use her resources in other places. And they're like, I, I need to just get that off of our plate. Cause it doesn't make any sense for them to build all of the processes themselves and become, you know, master podcasters, so to speak. So what we help them do is essentially it's like, Hey, you just 
do you do you right you do the interviews do that and we'll literally handle everything else for your podcast so it turned it from being a 15 hour 20 hour a week thing into they do four interviews at the beginning of the month because they batch them um and Mm -hmm. everything else happens like our our service steps in and takes over all of the other work for them and now their business development podcast is something that you know they can very easily put four hours a week into or a month into um and it's continuing to work for them um, and the same thing for clients that we help them start their podcast from scratch is we'll walk them through some of those, like the, the win is when you do it consistency over the long term, right? Where you have, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing a weekly show, you're doing a weekly show for one, two, three, four years, and you have a whole body of content that you create. It's really hard to keep that mm-hmm. up over the long term if it's not, um, especially for business development, the podcast doesn't generally directly drive revenue, right? Not like your main mm-hmm. services do. Um, so mm-hmm. we can help them come in and be like, Hey, we will take all the burden of running the podcast so you can consistently get it going. Right. And it's an investment mm-hmm. for them, right. Cause they're, they're investing in that audience building over the long term. But once you get a, you know, a year into running a podcast, you start to have an audience and it starts to pay off. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, anyway, so we, we help them get that done and actually, you know, mm-hmm. have that body of content. Um, and have the audiences built from it and, you know, not get overwhelmed by it. So it's, it's, it's really cool. And so how, how do these people find out about you in the first place? Um, so at this point in my business, um, so if we go all the way back to like my first client was a friend that had some ideas, um, in, in the space and I had just been, you know, we applied some teaching and decided to do some experiments together um, and you know, we got some tremendous results from him and, um, every client sense has been, um, referrals of some sort, right? As you sort of grow in business, your network grows and people start to see the, you know, find out that, Hey, the, the people that they really like the content from or like the funnels or like the, uh, the, uh, courses and training materials, they find out from like, Hey, who, you know, people, they get asked, right. Who, who helped you do all of this? And, you know, my name comes up and, you start moving up in, in the ranks, I guess, so to speak, of, uh, of, of the space and gotten to the point where I'm, you know, I'm working now with like the number one e-com trainers in the world, one of the number one copywriters in the world, helped make one of, uh, one of our clients the number one wholesale real estate trainers in the world. Um, and when you start having results like that for your clients, um, you get noticed and you get referred a lot. And because of because like in the expert brand business, I can only ever work with like four or five clients at a time. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't really have to do a lot of um, outbound marketing um, to fill mm-hmm. up those slots. It's generally like by the time I'm I've wrapping up a project with one client, I've got two or three others who are like, when you have an open space, let me know. I've got work for you, right? I want to do the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost all referrals. Yeah. Um, and to the point of your podcast is because we exceed expectations with, with our clients, right? We do good work for them and help them, uh, drive, drive really big numbers for that. Um, but on the same token, that's also why we're building the push button podcast service because it's not limited by my bandwidth, right? Where I have to bring my expertise Mm -hmm. to the table to deliver that service. So we can actually scale that a bit beyond my time limitations, if that makes sense. Um, so that's where, where some of our business growth is going to come over the next couple of years is, is by developing a service that's not tied directly to my expertise and my time. And something you just touched upon a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned about the, um, the real estate person that you helped you know, transform their, their income. So, and mm-hmm. I know there's a good story behind that. Tell us that story. Yeah, I've got, I've actually got a couple in the real estate space. They're one of them. They're actually both good stories. So I'm going to start with the second one first, just because we're, he's still a client of mine and a good friend. Um, and, uh, he came to me as a result of actually the, the first real estate client. And he was like, Hey, I want to develop a course and I want to become one of the number one coaches in the real estate space, like Grant Cardone level. Um, you know, mm-hmm. coaches and hired me and I helped him develop his course helped him develop his first webinar and then helped him develop, um, the navigation of, uh, you know, big media buys with, um, like the Cardone network and, um, Mm -hmm. over the, you know, helped him develop his funnels and develop all of the backend stuff, helped him hire his first sales guy and like all the, the, you know, how you do two call closes and like, we just walked him through all of those things for doing high ticket stuff and helped him sort of arrange his programs. Um, so he knows exactly how to sell them and, you know, set up a recurring mastermind thing that he does once people are done with the programs 
um, and all of that kind of stuff. And over the course of the first year, um, after his, his big media buy, we, um, we spent a hundred grand in, um, in ads, um, with the Grant Cardone network in the first year. And we brought in $698,000 in sales for his coaching program. And I remember, um, I actually have a picture of the, the first high ticket program that he sold was a $25,000 program for, you know, cause we had, we had a couple of tiers and one of them was a, uh, was a high end coaching program where he would actually come to your city and help you set up your wholesaling business, everything from finding your office space to hiring your, uh, your acquisitions manager to like, you know, setting up your advertising for you. And like, it was, you know, a full on, like almost like a franchise model for real estate wholesaling. Um, and the, mm-hmm. basically you, you'd walk away from your work with him, having your wholesaling business you know, running like a machine, um, which was super cool. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he sent me the ch- picture of the check, he got his first $25,000 check. Um, and that was a, a really cool moment for me um, to have that, you mm-hmm. know, in a couple of weeks after we got everything started. And then over the course of the next year, he had, he had a $5,000 program and then he had a, a cheaper program. I can't remember what the price is on the lower one. And then his mastermind. Um, and he now has, I think almost $20,000 a month in recurring mastermind fees coming from a, you know, a 297, um, recurring mastermind thing that he's got going. And it does, you know, close to three quarters of a million dollars a year in coaching sales, um, and has mm-hmm. become one of the top, uh, um, wholesaling coaches in the U S and everyone who mm-hmm. does real estate work in that space knows his name. And he had his first live event this last year. And was able to secure some of the best speakers in the industry on on the space because they all know who he was. So it was a it was a really cool experience to have someone grow that much as a result of the work that we were doing for them. Mm, yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah, and so that you say that was on the back of the first real estate guy that you helped. Yeah, yeah, that was on the. So he was a referral from the first real estate guy. So the first real estate guy was actually just a friend of mine. Um, and, uh, like I had gone to one of his events and started, you know, asking him some questions and we sort of became friends and he was like, I, I could really use your help, um, selling some of our program and his program was, uh, he, he was doing something really fancy in real estate. I'm not sure how much you know about real estate investing, but he was buying, um, buying houses wholesale from Fannie and Freddie, um, Mm-hmm. And then turning around and selling those houses, he'd buy them in bulk, buy like sets of 10 or 15 houses that didn't fit their criteria, right? And he would buy a bulk mm-hmm. set of houses and turn around and then sell them into the local investment market, right? Um, and he mm-hmm. was doing that rapidly, like he was in and out of deals within 28 days. Um, and so his, we, he was teaching all of that. And the biggest problem was is his teaching methodology. Like I, I went through his training course and it was just all over the place, right? Because he was an expert at doing this, but he wasn't an expert teacher, um, and I was like, mm-hmm. I think we would, you know, so the people who were buying his program were like, this is great information, but I don't really know what to do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I sat down with them and we spent a good two or three weeks. Um, and I, I, you know, we, I helped him change the hook and helped him change the structure of the training so that the training was designed to help someone who didn't know much about real estate investing to actually get their first deal accomplished. Um, and so we changed the hook on the, on the, the course to, you know, from being like, learn how to wholesale real estate and where he just like literally laid out his entire plan for wholesaling real estate and everything that goes into it to a very specific, like Mm. go through this course. And in 30 to 60 days, you will have your first deal closed. Right. So it was a very specific outcome. Um, Mm. and when we did that, um, he immediately started having students who were going through it, um, started getting results faster because we had, we restructured the course. Um, and mm. he went from selling $1,200 a month of the course to selling multiple thousands of dollars of the course, um, as a snowball effect of people getting results and posting pictures and, you know, success stories and like success stories really snowball the results of a, a training material course like that. Um, so mm. we did, uh, um, his first year, like I said, he did about $15,000 in sales and the second, um, the second year that he brought me in. Um, to help him, he did uh, $250,000 in sales and we had helped, I helped him develop a couple other aspects of the training course. We, so we started doing some live, live in-person masterminds and started doing some other things. So we had some higher ticket sale opportunities available. And like I said, we were able to do, to do a quarter million dollars in sales the second year. Um, you know, unfortunately he had 
he had some issues and uh, you know no longer able to uh, to to work with him um but that was you know had some personal issues not in the business anymore but um you know it was a it was a really cool thing to uh, to be a part of that that growth as well so when you started working with him I and mean, what were his expectations I mean I, I guess he wasn't expecting to get anywhere near those kind of figures <laughs> so the so this is actually a really interesting thing about setting expectations um it's it's something i believe really strongly about expectations is mm-hmm. that you have to like uh, i see this a lot in entrepreneur circles is is people like to to sell beyond their skill right because mm-hmm. they're worried that people won't buy if you don't do that um, and I've always been sort of staunchly the opposite where I will come in and like, for him, he was my first client 10 years ago. And I was like, I have a, some ideas about things we can do to help you. Right. And like, here's what some of those ideas are. I was, I was doing some high, I was doing a lot of really good marketing work for a big solar company, but I wasn't in the expert brand space. Right. And I, um, he was like, I really love the ideas that you have. Right. So I came in and I was, I sort of set the expectations with them. I was like, Hey, here's what, what I think we can do. Right. And I think we can do this. I think we can do the other thing. I think we can do this with your masterminds. I have some really cool ideas and I'm seeing other people use, but honestly, what I'm going to do with you, all of this is, um, is, uh, experiments, right? Cause I don't really know this market. You'll be my first client in this market. And I want you to understand sort of where I'm coming at from it. And he was like, I'm, I'm totally cool with that. And we set our business relationship up with those expectations in mind, right? Whereas like, so I, I we set up a, a, um, a very small retainer, um, just mm-hmm. to cover some of my time. And the bulk of the income I made from him was as a result of a percentage of profits that I helped create in his business. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so to the point of setting expectations, I didn't have, I didn't know what the expectations were. Right. So I had a very flexible mm-hmm. deal with him and was very clear with him about what I expected and what mm-hmm. I was thinking and where that was going. And he was like, okay, I understand we're experimenting with this stuff. And we grew a lot together over the course of the next few years. Um, and that's what it sort of led into the other clients. Now, 10 years down the road, right? I guess it's not 10 years. We're in 2020. It's only eight years down the road from that one. Um, the, uh, um, when I take on new clients in that space, like I have, mm-hmm. I have a, you know, a 25 to $50,000 retainer. Right. And mm-hmm. I can come in and I talk to them about very specifics like, hey, when we put a webinar together, we're expecting to see, you know, 45 percent registration rates on the page. We're expecting to see 30 percent show up rates on the uh, webinar. We're expecting to see one to three percent sales rate on the first one, you know, four percent sales on the, uh, the replay and six percent on the first set of follow up. Like I have numbers now because we've been doing it for so long that we know what our benchmarks are. Um, for mm-hmm. all the things that we're doing, everything from, you know, how long it takes us to build a website to how long it takes to build a webinar to how many people should convert into a mastermind to, you know, what kind of expectations you can have for a close rate if your product price is over $2,000 and you're doing phone sales, or if it's under $1,000 mm-hmm. and you're doing sales direct on a webinar, like we know what all those numbers are. So we can go in with mm-hmm. really clear expectations. And then the discussion is very different where we'll come in and say, hey, this is what we're going to be targeting. And right, these targets are mm-hmm. low, we'd like to beat them. Um, and if we're not beating them, this is where, like, you know, if we can't hit these numbers on a regular basis, this is where the clauses on our contract say, hey, if you can't regularly hit these numbers, you can fire us, right? Because we know what mm-hmm. our numbers are now. But that does, that's not the way it started. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so when you're giving people these sort of metrics that you are now, in the numbers that you say you're going to be able to do for them, are they, what's the reaction? So... Um, generally speaking, the numbers that I give people are very low ball. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a very, I, I, I believe highly in the, uh, under, uh, under promise and over deliver, um, mm-hmm. for managing expectations. And so mm-hmm. generally speaking, we're, we're, um, the reaction is like, I want to find out from them what excites them. And I want to find mm-hmm. out from them what, um, what they can live with right? What would make them satisfied, right? Then there's a difference there. It's a subtle difference. And we try to, Mm -hmm. I try to set the expectations and help them be like, Hey, what we're going to target for all of these is satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. And then me and my team, our goal is to hit the exciting numbers. Um, and, and so generally the reaction is I, it's, I know I need to have these things in place and I need to get this done. So, you know, and I've got a reputation now. So most of the time they're, they are 
excited to be working with me. Um, mm-hmm. And um, because I'm really honest about where all of our numbers are and what we're looking for, generally the expect the uh, the response to what I lay out is like, thank you for being so honest about what your numbers are mm-hmm. and why they are where they are. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I tell them all the things that we go into and like, Hey, here's where the dangers are. Here's where things are going to be hard. Here's some of the roadblocks we're going to run into. And I, like, I try to, I, I generally try to get people to not buy from me, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. like, I, I try to let them know where all the problems are and what we're going to run into. Cause we're not looking generally for short-term projects that we're going to make a bunch of money from and leave. Um, most of my clients mm-hmm. end up being clients for years and years. Um, and we have long-term mm-hmm. relationships and, um, I've just found that if we set up the expectations up front, be like, Hey, this is, you know, I want to look at this sort of as a non-legal partnership where like, you know, we win together and we lose together and that kind of stuff. People are really appreciative of that. Um, we get the excitement mm-hmm. and the, uh, the stuff when, when like we actually really start hitting our stride, um, and, mm-hmm. you know, really growing their business. So, you, I mean, the first couple of people you mentioned were both in real estate, real estate. Is that mostly what you concentrate on or is it many different sectors? Um, so the expert space uh, definitely expands beyond real estate. Um, but the interesting thing happens when you have success in a space, you get, lots of more, mm. you get lots more referrals in that space. So I do have a number of people in real estate. I think it's like five or six at this point that I've helped in the real estate space. But I've also got mm. clients who are like I had a lady who I worked with for a number of years that uh, – did uh, um, trauma recovery for women, and I'm currently mm-hmm. working with a uh, an organization that does ecom training. Um, I have a company that has an ecom business, right? They actually sell um, sell fuels and candles on Amazon, and I've got um, I you know I've got clients that do uh, um, any number of things, right? So it, like it, it definitely spans industries, um, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason. Um, I tend to get into the uh, real estate spaces pretty frequently. One of my newest clients actually mm-hmm. is in uh, PR um, and mm-hmm. they do high level PR for like, how do you get in front of, you know, entrepreneur magazine um, and like get a regular featured column in their magazine, stuff like that. So like really high level PR. And so anyways, mm-hmm. it, um, and the same kind of stuff works across industries. So. And you, uh, when we were talking before the, we started recording, you were telling me about um, was it marketing marketing director of a solar company? I think it was. Yeah, so that's actually uh, earlier in my career. Um, I was the uh, director of marketing for a solar company. So, like, if we if we back all the way up in my life, um, I uh, I started my first business when I was thirteen. So I was like, I've always been into. Mm-hmm into um, business and you know I got shut down by the uh, the powers that be at 13 because you know you weren't allowed to sell on campus without a business license um, but you know be that as it may like I, I actually I had a um, like three businesses in after college I was running a marketing company a local like a little local agency helping local businesses do things and was really really struggling with that business because I didn't have the belief in myself at that time to actually mm-hmm. charge prices that allowed me to serve well and still have money for marketing and also mm-hmm. feed my kids. <laughs> so I was, yeah. I was killing that business because of pricing and confidence issues. Um, mm-hmm. So I um, decided I needed to get a job. But what I wanted was I wanted a job that would help me solve the confidence issue while um, really developing my skills in the marketing space. Right. And like, you know, putting food on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I, I, I was like, I want to have a C level marketing position. Um, and that was actually, it was December of 2012. I remember really clearly. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to shut down my local agency business and take a job as a director of marketing. Um, and by February 4th of the following year, 2013, I had, um, I had, uh, secured that position. Um, and was making a six-figure salary, was in control of a $25,000 a month marketing budget um, with this company. And uh, like I said, over the course of uh, 15 or 18 months working with them, we 10 x their lead flow um, and, and really, really helped grow their business. And for me, learned a whole bunch about like what my skills actually were Right. And how capable I was, um, and was able to step back out. Um, and actually I gave them like three months notice when I 
when I quit because I was like, I want to hire and train someone to take my position and be able to do all the things that we're doing. Because I really liked working for them and still like mm-hmm. them as a company. And we still have a good relationship and they occasionally hire me for contract work and things like that. But um, I um, you know, stepped out of that position and um, went back to my marketing career. And that's where um, it was like, so like about halfway into that career, I was doing the work with the first real estate company the first real estate uh, expert. And I was mm-hmm. like, I was able to step full time into that position because I started having other people that wanted to work with me. Um, mm-hmm. And I now had, I had the confidence in myself to actually charge what I was worth, if that makes sense. Um, and actually grow yeah. a real business. Just on, let's go back a little bit here. That was an interesting story. You started, you, you started saying about when you were, I think it was 14 and you were, selling things at school and whatever. Yeah. How did that come about in the first place? What, what was it? Was that like your, your parents or how <laughs> so did that my, uh, first come about? That happened. I was nine. I think I was nine. I can't exactly remember clearly. Um, I, so nine is, 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 is a, a fudge number from my brain. I think I was nine. My dad comes home from work one day after school and he puts the rich dad, poor dad book in my hand. One of his friends at work had, <laughs> had got it and said, Hey, I think your son would like this. Cause you know, I was nerdy about, you know, business things and like i you, you read you read rich dad poor dad at nine years old um i did so my dad brought it home i read the whole book wow. that night um and then i read it the next day right. and i read it again the day after that so i read it five times in a week um cover to um, cover um and um i was sort of obsessed um and i had over the course of the next couple of years into you know um my middle school career i managed to convince my parents to let me out of going to daycare right i had a Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go to, what is it, Boys and Girls Club or something after school. And I convinced them that I should, mm-hmm. instead of going to Boys and Girls Club, I should get to go to Barnes & Noble. Um, and um, so I would go to Barnes & Noble after school. Um, and I would sit there in the business and marketing section and I would read all the books that I couldn't afford. Um, so I, I read like everything that had ever been printed on business and marketing and real estate and investing and like, like, and I, I just read all of it. Um, and like, I would go to Barnes and Noble and I'd stack a set of books up next to their comfortable chairs and I would read until my mom, my mom or my dad got off of work and came and picked me up. What, what, what was the reaction from the staff in the store? Um, I, so the staff in the store thought I was nuts. Um, but I started to become like, uh, like I always had like, you know, you'd have the older gentleman who sit down next to you and be like, what are you doing with all these books? And like, I got, I got all sorts of compliments from people as a kid. They're like, I can't believe you're reading this kind of stuff. Like, you know, essentially, it's really cool or you're insane. Like either one of those, <laughs> those kind of responses, but you know, yeah. it's, I was yeah. a kid, right? So, so no one was ever mean to me about it. It's just, um, you know, it was, it, I think people were just surprised to see someone so young interested in that kind of stuff. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. So <laughs> my, my first business idea that I got from, mm. um, from sort of all of my reading. And I was like, cause I was always asking myself, like, how can I create an income that's not tied to a job? Right. Cause that's how everyone else earns income. And mm. I knew from all of my reading that like, there was this thing called business that I didn't have much experience with. Like my family weren't business owners. I didn't have any entrepreneurs to look up to or ask questions to. So I was just experimenting. Right. I didn't really know what was going on. And all I had was the mentors in my books. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I've mm-hmm. since learned how important learning to ask really good questions is. And I just, lucked into mm. the ability to sort of, I was asking myself smart questions as a child, right? And I was mm. asking myself, how can I create an income as a high school student, right? I was 13 at the time. And what came to me, I was like, I was like, we have crappy candy in the vending machines at school, right? Um, and I was like, all the mm. kids love candy. I love candy. Everyone loves candy. But we don't have any of the good stuff, like the big Snickers bars or those big nerd ropes or other things like that. So I convinced my dad to give me a loan for 50 bucks, um, and, and he mm-hmm. was like, oh, I don't, <laughs> um, I was like, I could just give you 50 bucks. And I was like, specifically, I was like, I don't, I don't want you to give me $50. I want you to loan me $50. <laughs> right. Um, and so my dad, let my, my dad thought I was nuts too. <laughs> Still does actually. <laughs> um, but at least at this point, he's proud of me for all the stuff we've done. But, um, I was like, I want mm-hmm. a loan for it. Cause I was like, that's the way it would happen in business, right? A bank wouldn't just give me $50. Right. So I was mm. like, I convinced my dad that he should loan me 50 bucks. Um, and I, uh, and I had him give it to me at like a 10% interest for a month or whatever. Um, so I owed him, you know, 51 bucks when we were done. Um, mm. and, um, and so, you know, my dad's laughing at me, right. Cause you know, what 13 year old asks his dad to give him a loan instead of giving him 50 bucks at, with an interest rate, right. Like that was me. Um, and, 
I, uh, um, I took that $50 and then I had to, you know, beg him to take me down to the store. I didn't pay him for the gas money or anything like that. Cause I wasn't that cool. Um, but mm-hmm. we went to a smart and final and I spent all $50 and all the big candies and I brought him to school and I was like the proverbial kid on, you know, kid on New York, you know, New York, uh, um, New York with the trench coat, like opening the trench coat and like check out my wares kind of thing, except it was my backpack and I was on campus with, you know, with fancy candies and I was selling them, you know, I bought them all for about 50 cents a pop and I was selling them for two bucks a pop. Um, and I sort of mm. became known on campus as the kid with all the good candy. And over the course of six weeks or so, I sold about $1,500 mm-hmm. worth of candy, um, wow. which was really cool. And I remember um, two really important lessons I got from that was the first time I sold all $50 worth of candy, I had, um, I had money, right? I had money and I was mm-hmm. like, I owed my dad money. So I gave him back the $50 and then I had to go and buy mm-hmm. inventory, right? I had to buy more inventory um, to refill mm-hmm. my stores so I could go back and sell more. And like, so I had made like a mm-hmm. hundred bucks on the 50 bucks that I bought. Mm-hmm. So I gave dad back his 50 bucks mm-hmm. and I bought $50 worth more of candy. And I was like, I just did all this work and got all this sales experience and did all these things. And I have no money, right? Like I have nothing mm-hmm. to show for it, right? Except mm-hmm. a bag of candy, right? I had my inventory. And so like, I didn't understand what profit and revenue um, and cost of goods sold and all that stuff was. So I was like, I don't mm-hmm. understand how I sold $100 worth of candy and I have $0. <laughs> And I had to actually like sit down and figure that out and learn the words for profit and revenue and cost of goods sold and things like that at 13. Um, and, wow. and, 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 well, it's a couple of things that come to mind when you're talking about all of that. One is how did the teachers and staff at the school react, but also bullies with that, that amount of cash that you've got. Was there not any issue with that either? So I never had any problem with bullies. Um, we, I lucked out into, um, our, our whole city was kind of a upper middle class. We didn't really have a lot of, um, uh, we didn't have a lot of riffraff in our school, if that makes sense. So most of the people mm-hmm. were very cool. Um, and mm-hmm. because of where we lived, a lot of the kids' parents were, you know, high level CEOs or executives in San Diego and LA and stuff like that. Um, and right. you know, we're, um, we were a college prep school. So most of the kids were, were like dedicated and, you know, doing mm-hmm. good work and stuff like that. So I did not have a problem with bullies. And I was also smart mm-hmm. enough that like whatever money I made that day, I brought home and, you know, gave my dad to mm-hmm. you know, store safekeeping kind of stuff. So I wasn't walking around with mm-hmm. much cash. Um, and mm-hmm. the teachers didn't have a problem with it. Cause it was something I never, I never did it in class. It was always, you know, during resource or breaks or something like that. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I had to keep my grades up cause my dad was like, don't like keep your grades up. You can't do this. So like I was, mm-hmm. I was a model student and my teachers all loved me. The problem I ran into was with the administration. Um, the administration on mm-hmm. campus did not like it. Um, and told me, um, I, I think at least twice that I, um, um, that they, they didn't like that I was selling on campus. And then, you know, about, like I said, six weeks in, I actually got called into the principal's office and was informed that they had found the legal reason why I could not sell on campus. And it was because I did not have a business license. Um, and because I was under 18, I could not get a business license and therefore was not allowed to sell on campus. So I tell people now that I had my first government shutdown when I was 13 because, you know, it was a government-run school. And the administration shut me down. So the government shut me down at 13. Wow. But that gave you, obviously, the taste for the whole business side of things. I was was hooked, right? I created Mm. created money from nothing, essentially, right? Because I didn't Mm. have anything when I started. I borrowed the $50. I paid the $50 back. I created income from nothing, which is what entrepreneurship is. It's about creating value and adding Mm. to the world, right? We add our value to the world and we create more wealth Mm. and... Um, it was, um, it was, it was my first taste of that and it has stuck with me ever since and I love it. And is that linked to, I mean, so your podcast is called a story born hero. Is, is there a link between what you've just told me and, and the theme of the podcast? Yeah. So the, the podcast is called the hero show. Um, but yeah, the, uh, okay. um, the, the idea of the podcast is, um, uh, if you've ever read, uh, read Anne Ryan's Atlas Shrugged. She talks a lot about um, the world is being held up by the entrepreneurs. And if the world doesn't mm-hmm. take care of entrepreneurs, they might just shrug their responsibility and the world would fall, right? And if you think about mm-hmm. it, everything in your life that you have, the chair that you're sitting in, the microphone that you're using here, the system that we're using to record on, like literally everything at some point was touched by an entrepreneur, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's pretty much nothing that you ever have an interaction with on your daily basis that wasn't at some point touched by an entrepreneur from a you know products and services standpoint. And so it, mm-hmm. th- there's a there's a lot of reality to entrepreneurs hold up the world; they make the world go round. And it's the uh, the mm-hmm. value that we create to grow and make people's lives better. And you know, entrepreneurship and capitalism over the last you know 200 300 years has increased global GDP more than fifteen thousand percent and has raised more people out of poverty than anything else in the world. And my, the podcast for me is really, it's just a way to highlight the heroes the way that I see them, right? We, we naturally look at policemen and firefighters and doctors and veterans as heroes in our culture. And for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, entrepreneurs are often villainized, right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. you grow up looking, I grew up, you know, we watched Captain Planet, right? And Captain Planet was essentially a, a, progressives wet dream about you know entrepreneurs are satan and they're always looking for profit mm-hmm. and never for value and that's just not the reality like reality of the world mm-hmm. is entrepreneurs are good people who are creating value and making other people's lives better and so the hero show for me mm-hmm. is just it's a give back to that community um, to really mm-hmm. help raise them up and help them look at themselves the way that i wish the world looked at entrepreneurs which is as a hero right as someone mm-hmm. who's doing good for the world so anyways that's where that's come from and is that sort of like an interview uh, format? It is. It's an interview format. And I interview entrepreneurs all over the spectrum, everything from people who have uh, just started their business and are, you know, like the, you know, <laughs> the proverbial 13-year-old who's selling candy, right? All the way up to like, I've had uh, Silicon Valley tech startups and companies that have, uh, you know, they did $60 million in their first two years, or like we just had the guys who did the... Uh, the four square volleyball net that, you know, went from zero to 2 million bucks in their first year. Um, so like all over the spectrum for entrepreneurs, just looking at things that people are creating and how they're doing it. Um, it's, it's sort of my passion project. What are your general thoughts on exceeding expectations, Richard? So my general thoughts on exceeding expectations are that should be your modus operandi, right? It should be the thing that you're known for. Um, and you should systematically work in your business to, surprise and delight the people you work with right if you want to um if you want to have a great example of that like you know go buy an apple product right even if you hate apple go buy an apple product and just go through the process of talking to their staff in the store to getting the product packaging even their product packaging is designed to surprise and delight Right. I don't know if you've ever mm. opened a package mm. from other people where, you know, like the packaging is horrible and you have to get the scissors out and cut things open. And like Apple goes all the way down to like this stupid little details. Like you just pull the little tab and then the whole thing opens up the way that you want. And it's always, mm. it's always a really nice experience. And I always look to companies like Apple, like how do we make our experiences better? Right. And, mm. um, and so for me in the service space, we're generally talking about it like directly to your point is like, what are you expect out of this relationship? And then how do we deliver mm-hmm. on that? So I always try to, I said this earlier, um, to temper expectations, right? Mm-hmm. To give people a really good reality of here's what business actually looks like and what this business looks like. So we go all the way down to like, I'll sit down and talk like, hey, most businesses, like real world businesses are operating on a 30% margin right? You're going to get into the expert brand space and think to yourself, I've got no cost of goods sold. I have a hundred percent margin minus ad costs. And that's just not the way it works, right? You're going to have staff and you're going to have um, your services cost and you're going to have like your, your cost of goods sold for, for digital products is really, really high compared to physical products. Um, and mm-hmm. so we get in and I help temper people's expectations of like, Hey, if you sell a hundred dollars worth of products, you make 30 bucks. That's what businesses like Apple or the solar company that I worked at or Microsoft, right? They, they operate on, you know, 28 to 35% margins and mm-hmm. you running a real business should look at that, right? So we really temper those expectations and bring them down. Like, here's what the reality looks like. And then we mm-hmm. work on how do we exceed those, right? How can we, you know, use automation or use other things to help increase your, um, increase your, your stuff there. So anyways, like my, my modus operandi is like, how do I help, temper your expectations and then show you how you can beat them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. Yeah. Well, if people want to find out more about you and get in contact with you, where, where would they go to? Um, so my um, primary brand is uh, richardmatthews.me, right? That's my personal brand. And this, the stuff that you'll see up on there is all geared around the expert brand business. 
stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I'm in the process of spinning that stuff down. It'll probably start getting replaced with more of the push button podcast style stuff in the future, but you can find mm-hmm. all my contact information there and, um, all the stuff that I do is up there. It's a good place for it. If you, um, are interested in the push button podcast stuff, that's up at pushbuttonpodcast.com. Um, and you know, that, you know, anyone who's running a business development style podcast, we could certainly help take all the work off of your plate. Um, and, and, and is that is that is that just for people in the US or international as well? International, any um, anyone who's a like ideal person for that, someone who's running a weekly show um, mm-hmm. that is driving, they're using the audience to uh, to either build fame or drive drive audience into uh, another business, right? You know, local chiropractor or online education mm-hmm. programs, things like that, where it's not a business in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so like those people and who are running a weekly show and they just don't want to do all of the work that goes into running that mm-hmm. show. They just want to show up, do their thing, be the expert on their show or, you know, be the guest, the, the expert interviewer, um, and have everything mm-hmm. else handled for them. And that's, uh, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com. And then of course I do encourage mm-hmm. people to listen to my show. If you like, uh, um, if you like to hear stories of entrepreneurs from all over the, all over the world, the hero show is, uh, it's my passion project. So I always like to get more people listening to that when I can. Superb. And um, Richard, I believe there's a, you've got a quote that you quite like. Yeah. My favorite quote, the quote I live by, it's a Mark Twain quote. Um, and he, uh, he says, uh, um, 20 years from now, you will regret more of the things you didn't do than the ones you did. So throw off the bow lines, sail out of the safe harbor, explore, dream, and discover. And for me, that's really been a, a, a life quote. And I have always been the kind of person who um, I will jump off the cliff and figure out how to build a parachute on the way down um, and, and run my business and my life that way. My, everything from like <laughs> my wife and I got, my wife and I eloped. We had our, our first kids. We moved into the RV in 28 days. I've started businesses on, you know, in, in 48 hours. And like, you know, we travel the country and, and succeed and do cool things. And I would... I would venture to guess that most people stop themselves from trying because of fear of mm. you know things not turning out. And what I have what I have found time and time again is when you jump, when you sail out of the safe harbor, what you find is that the experience of trying makes you ready. Right? Most people wait until they're ready to try, and you'll never mm. be ready. Right? So if you can yeah. instead jump first, the experience of learning is, is going to make you ready, right? And, and that's, that's it's how, it's how you, you grow your life, grow your business. Well, Richard, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. It's been some amazing stories. So, um, yeah, thank you for, your, um, for sharing your, everything that you've um, shared in the last sort of, 50 minutes with our audience. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Next week is episode 77 with Billy Brohe, who's a public speaker who helps organizations improve their company culture, increase team performance, and, and many other areas. He's got some, some great stories to tell. That's next week with Billy Brohe. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please do subscribe, leave a review, share the episode, and, and most of all, have a fantastic week.